You can be seated. At halftime of the Notre Dame Army game, uh, 1928, which I know was before probably most of you were around or your parents were even around, but it was a famous game in 1928 because Notre Dame and Army were a traditional rivalry. They, uh, it was a big game each year. Notre Dame this year in 1928 was having a bad season. Uh, matter of fact, they might have their first losing season for a long time, and they were hoping to redeem it. Well, at halftime, they were down by two touchdowns. Things weren't looking good. They came into the locker room, and the players were real quiet as they stared at each other. And in came their famous coach, Newt Rockney. Uh, Newt Rockney had been one of the beginning leaders in coaching, had been one of the innovators in coaching, and famous for his coaching at Notre Dame. He came in, quietly looked around at all of his players. After a moment, he spoke, and he said, Well, boys, I haven't... A- thing to say about the game we've been playing a great game all of you have played a great game i guess sometimes you just can't win them all he paused for a moment he looked around at the room quietly he began to say i'm going to tell you something i've kept to myself for many years none of you in this room knew who george gipp was Uh, he was gone before you ever got here but most of you have heard of him he's a legend here at notre dame he stopped for a moment, surveyed the room of players, began to look off into the distance with a squint into his eye and continued. He said, the last thing he said to me, George Gift that is, said, Rock, sometimes the team is going to be up against it. Sometimes the breaks are just going to be beating the boys. There's going to be times when it's tough. And those times, Rock, you tell them to go out there. Go out there with everything that they've got and win one for the Gipper. He paused and looked around the room, choked up, said, I don't know where I'll be then, Rock. That's what George Gipp told me. But I know wherever I am, I know whatever's going on, I'll know about what happens and I'll be happy. The room was quiet as he finished. Looked around, looking at each player in the eye. He said, all right, quietly. Got up and walked out. Tension in the room was heavy. As the players sat there, taking in what their coach had just said. Finally, one of the captains of the team jumped up and said, what are we waiting for? They stormed out onto the field and ended up winning. Notre Dame came back in the second half and won. Incredible speech, incredible motivational power, incredible uh, way to reach in and get something out of his players that um, he couldn't have gotten before. Now, to be honest with you, we don't know if those are the actual words that Newt Rockney used. Uh, we have that scene from a 1940 movie called Newt Rockney, uh, All American. And so that scene is laid out. He did talk about George Gibb. We don't know the actual words. But it played for a great scene in the movie. And that movie became famous because the man that played George Gipp in the movie was Ronald Reagan. And uh, many of you may remember 40 years later as he was running for president, one of the themes was win one for the Gipper. And uh, he played off of his character of George Gipp. But with it and with that popularity and with that scene, those kind of motivational speakers... Those kind of emotional speeches became the norm for football. 
became the norm for almost any sport. Matter of fact, if you've ever played a sport, you probably had a coach that gathered you before the game, gathered you at halftime, and gave you somewhat of a same kind of speech. Matter of fact, many say that uh, the only person they've ever heard that was better than Newt Rockney at giving those kind of speeches was Lou Holtz when he was at Notre Dame. They said he could spend uh, hours working on his speech to rile up his team, to dig deep. You see, it was more an emotion. You know, people say, well, coaches like to get you emotional. No, because emotions don't last. You get out there for the first series, and that emotion may drive you, but there had to be something else. And you see, what Rockney was doing is he was trying to dig deep inside of them to motivate them to think about this man that had passed away playing football for Notre Dame. And When times got difficult, when it was getting tough, that they could draw some strength from that. Last couple of weeks, really 15 weeks, we've been looking at characters in the Bible, characters that we've called people who were found faithful, people who faced difficulty, people who faced trials, people who faced uh, everyday encounters in their life where they were called to be faithful, where they were called to, to trust God, to step out trusting Him. And as we've looked at each of these characters, as I was thinking last week, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could hear from them, wouldn't it be great if, if all of these characters that we've looked at, the 14 of them, if they could come together and we could have a, a group meeting and they could give us some advice, if they could speak into our lives like Newt Rodney did that team, if, if they could say, look, I, I know what you're going through. I, I know how tough it is. I know how difficult your life can get. I know how the trials and the roads can get difficult. And Noah could step up and talk. And Gideon could share. And the woman with issues could share. They could talk about the difficulties in their life and and motivate us. But unfortunately, we don't have anything like that. There is no uh, motivational speech from those characters. But lucky for us, the writer of Hebrews puts together, he culminates some everyday advice that he drew from who we call the roll call of faith, the heroes of our faith, those that are found faithful, those who, when they came to the end of their life, God said, "You, well done, you finished the race. You've run it with everything that you had. And he compiles at the end of this roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, a list of things, a list of a couple of things that that would be advice for you and I. Advice for how you can get through your week, get through your day, get through your life, trusting God in everything that you do. So this morning as we end this series, and if you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back and listen online or download it. And and each one of them, I think, teach us a lesson. But as we end it, I, I just want to give you some everyday advice from those that are found faithful. Uh, Not a motivational speech, not an emotional speech. uh, Some advice that you can draw to when things are difficult. Some advice that you can draw on when the emotions just aren't there, when you just don't feel it anymore. You see, it's easy to rile up people on a Sunday morning and walk out ready to charge hell with a water pistol, right? But what happens on Monday when uh, you pull out the checkbook and you can't pay the bills or what happens on Tuesday when your kid comes home crying from school or Wednesday when things fall apart at work. See, that emotion won't won't push you through. That emotion won't lead you to trusting God. When you face a death in the family, when you face disaster, those emotions aren't there. So what the writer of Hebrews has done is he's given us some great practical guidelines 
So if you have a blue sheet, if you have a Bible, I want you to listen to it. Hebrews chapter 12. And as I said, this will wrap up our study here. Uh, but I think these are important. These are important for you and I to, to take with us. If you're struggling this morning, if you're needing some guidance, if you could use a motivational speech, there's none better than what we find in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, you need to know this is one of those places where the writers and the, the compilers of the Bible uh, didn't do a real good job splitting the chapters. You know, uh, when they took the Bible and they brought it into English. If you go back and read in the Greek and in the translations that we have and the papyruses, there are no chapters. There are no verses. Those were added in later for our help. If uh, you wanted to be able to go and read, you had to have some place to reference it. So they added it into reference. And as they added it, this is uh, there's several places. This is not a good place to cut off. And the reason you know that is because he starts the chapter off with the word, therefore. Uh, therefore, I've told you before, whenever you see it there, don't rush by it. Understand, what's it there for? Why did he say therefore? Because what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is we just finished this roll call of faith. Just finished Hebrews chapter 11 that lists all of these great characters, and what they did, how they trusted God. And so he comes to chapter 12, which should really be the end of chapter 11. He says, listen, because of all that... Because of all that they did, because of their example, because of their obedience, because of their faith, I want you to listen to this. And so that's where he comes in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart. Now one of the important lessons that we've learned throughout this study is that being found faithful is not one great big act of faith. Now, as we've looked at these people, we, we've seen these determinative acts, these acts that have defined them, this, this one time that they really stepped out on faith. But if we learn any lessons, it's that our walk of faith is not about one big act. It's not about you building up to trust God, you, you trying to, to build up your faith to do something. It's about everyday small acts of faith. You see, the thing that is important for us to realize is, is that you will never find yourself in a position to take a big act or leap of faith if you haven't been faithful in the little things because God won't take you to that place because he knows you won't follow through. But when we're faithful in the little things, when we're faithful every day, when we're faithful to trust God for everyday little decisions, to, to lean on him, that's when he begins to provide for us bigger opportunities to serve, bigger opportunities to be blessed, bigger opportunities to do what he's calling us to do. Jesus said, those that are faithful on the little things, I can entrust with the larger things. And so what we need to realize is that the little things count. I know there's so many books that are out that talk about not sweating the small stuff, but in the Christian life, it's the small stuff that ever gets us to the big stuff. Some of you say, I, I wish God would use me. I wish God would open doors. I wish God would do something incredible in my life. We've been talking about all these people that did these great things. How come God's never asked me to do it? Because you've never placed yourself in a place where he can trust you. Because you haven't trusted him. And so probably the greatest lesson that he's trying to encourage us with is that you need to, to look at the everyday little ins and out of your life and ask yourself, do you trust God? 
Do you trust God with your tomorrow? Do you trust God with your kids? Trust God with your work? Do you trust God with your checkbook? Do you trust God with what you watch and read and see? Because it's in those areas that he's going to motivate us. It's in those areas that he's going to come and encourage us. This advice is for practical, everyday application. Every day, following God. And the things that he says here are easy to pull out. It's not rocket science. You probably saw them as you were reading through it. A couple of things that he wants us to remember. Uh, just to draw your attention, those of you that like to take notes, and you can go back and read it, and you can find them easily. The first thing that he encourages us with, the first thing that he motivates us with, is that we need to allow ourselves to draw encouragement and motivation from those who have gone before us. He says, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness... He's reminding us, you're not in this alone. You're not walking this walk by yourself. That's one of the reasons church is so important. People say, I don't need the church. I can worship at home. I have people that tell me, Rusty, we, we download your podcast and we listen to some worship music and we listen to you at home. We don't, we don't need to be there. No, you have to. Why? Not because we're going to count you, not because you get brownie points, not because uh, it's just what's expected in Sunday on the south that you go to church. You need church because you need to remember we are in this together. We are a part of something bigger. And you and I, he's saying here, need to draw our encouragement, draw our motivation from those who have gone before us. You've got people cheering for you every day. All of these people in Hebrews 11 are up there saying, listen, we were where you were. We've made those decisions. Trust God. But not just those that have gone before in Hebrews 11. Those in our own lives. We talked some about it last week. People that have poured faith into us. They're out there cheering for us. Those that have passed away. Grandparents and aunts and uncles and coaches and teachers that were Christians. They're watching, they're, they're seeing, they're cheering for you. They know that you can do it. When, when times get tough, when, when things get difficult, that's where we draw strength. I know that, that my mother that's passed away and my brother that's passed away and my grandparents that have passed away, they're cheering for me. They're saying, Rusty, you can do it. Say, but it's a tough decision. Trust God. I don't know what to do here. Trust God. You've got a cheering section in this church. Those that came before us that helped found this church and build this church, they're cheering us on, saying, trust God, don't give in. Be what God has called us to do. Be what God is calling us to do. See, he says, draw strength. Let them motivate you. See, the language here in the whole passage, he talks about a race as we read. It's like understanding a relay race. You're not on your own. You're, you're in a race with everyone else. And it's like those that have come before us run up to us and they pass the baton. Say, your turn. If you've ever watched a relay race, if you've ever been a part of a relay race, after you run your leg and you pass off the baton, you don't go get water. It's not break time for you. You'll start putting your warm-ups on. I've done my part. I'm going over here. What do you do? Stand on the track and come on, you're cheering. You're looking at your other teammates. Go, go. And what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is that's what those that came before us are doing right now. Go, run, trust God, be faithful, be obedient. Don't give up. Don't stumble. Don't quit. Don't take a time out. Go. When you feel like you're all alone, you need to remember you're not. You got people all around you that are in the same race you are. You've got people that have come before you that pass the baton off to you. They're saying, those young people, those teenagers, those children, 
those adults, go, run. They're counting on So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. The second thing he tells us here is we need to get rid of the things that are hindering us in our walk with God. Now, the interesting thing about this word he uses for hinder, it's the word we get weight from. Your King James Version says, let us throw off every weight that slows us down, that hinders us. It's the word onkos, and it's, it's a neutral word. doesn't mean good or bad. In and of itself, it's not good or bad. It becomes bad because it distracts us and slows us down from doing what God's called us to do. See, in this life, some of the things that are hindering us are not bad things by, by nature. They're not bad things. It's not, you know, money is not a bad thing. People talk about money and in church we like to preach against money. Money's not a bad thing. God never said money is bad. I don't want you to have money. I don't want you to, to have things in your life. What he says is when those things start to hinder who God is calling you to be, what God is calling you to do, when you begin to trust in those things, you've got to get rid of it. Sometimes it's a relationship begins to hinder your walk with God, begins to distract. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to throw it off. See, he's using this runner illustration. He's saying, listen, it's like being weighted down. You're, you're, somebody is on your shoulders and you're trying to run. You've got to get rid of it. You can't let it distract you. You can't let it divert your attention. You can't let it sap your strength. Let me ask you this morning, is there anything in your life that's keeping you from being faithful to what God is calling you to do? Is there anything that you've said that God's put on your heart that you say, man, I'd love to do that. Man, I'd love, I, God, I'd love to do that for God. But, why? Why'd you say but? What is it that's keeping you? What is it that's distracting you? What is it that's taking your time? What is it that's weighing you down that's keeping you from being obedient? Here he's saying, throw it off. Could be relationship, emotion, feeling, job, mindset, all of those things. Not bad things. Told you before, one of the hardest things for me as, as a minister, when I was getting called to the ministry, is, is, is all the dreams I had as a kid. They weren't bad things. I dreamed I was going to grow up and I wanted to be a lawyer and maybe go into politics. I was always real politically involved in high school and college. And that was always something I wanted to do until I realized you couldn't be a politician and a Christian. But uh, after I got past that, you know, I, I started thinking, I, I, and there are good Christian politicians. I'm just joking. But um, I, I, that was my dream. That was what I'd always wanted to do. And as God began to call me to ministry, I always kept that in my back pocket. I got closer to graduating from college, and as I was graduating from college, I was already doing full-time ministry at a church, and God was saying, this is what I want you to do with your life. And I would say, God, but I've got these dreams, and I've got these aspirations, and maybe I need to go register for the LSAT just so in case I decide that I don't want to do this, then I'm going to have this here. God said, no, it's time for you to give me your hopes and dreams. Because your hopes and dreams are little, Rusty. I've got big hopes and dreams for you. See, I couldn't see that because I, all I could see was what I wanted. The hardest thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a bad aspiration. Some of you may aspire to that. But for me, it was holding me back. For me, it was keeping me from being all in. It was, it was something that I was saying, just in case, I, I've got this here. God said, let go of it. See, trust means stepping out and letting go. He says, throw off all of those things that hinder you. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer and pastor said, this is the rule of my life. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away from my time or taste for studying the Word of God, 
or cramps my prayer life or makes me being a Christian and being obedient difficult, it's wrong for me and I've got to walk away. I've got to to cast it off. The writer says, throw off those things that hinder us. He said, trust that you're not alone. Draw from them and get rid of some of that stuff that's keeping you from being who God called you to be. And he goes on and say, and the sin that so easily entangles us. The third thing, we need to stop letting sin entangle us. And what's interesting is here is he doesn't use the word sin. He uses the definitive article. He says, stop allowing the sin to entangle you, meaning that there is some specific sin that you keep inviting back into your life. He's saying there's something that you just keep bringing in. It's slowing you down. It's throwing you off. It's keeping you off track. And he said, if you ever want to be faithful, if you ever want to trust God, you're going to have to defeat that. You're going to have to stop allowing it to control you. Because you see, that's what sin does. It entangles us. That's a great word there. The word picture in the Greek is is like a spider web. And you see, sin promises all kinds of things that it can't deliver. And so we, we get stuck into it like a spider web. And before we know it, just thinking we were just going to touch it, we're all messed up in it. And we're entangled and we're trapped. And it has us. We no longer have it. That's the way sin works. So we said, just a taste. It's just a touch. The moment you do, it grabs you and it's got you. But you see, the thing for Christians is the Bible says the power of sin has been broken. So sin can't control you anymore unless you invite it in. Unless you say, I'm going to do that. And so what the writer here is saying is, listen, you've got, to, you've got to get rid of that that is slowing you down, that's entangling you, that sin that you keep inviting back in, that jealousy, that envy, critical spirit, hatred, unforgiveness, lust, pride, those things that you're allowing to keep you from running the race God's called you to. Stop allowing it to control you. And then after he says to get rid of those things, he says, and run the race marked out for us. But he says a couple of things about this race that I think are interesting. You know, Paul loved to compare the Christian life to sporting events. And so a lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't know. Uh, I can argue both ways. But I know it's the same kind of imagery here. And the, the thing about a race is what he's telling us is, you know, the Christian race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And he says, don't give up. Run with perseverance. You see, and the thing about a marathon, it doesn't matter how fast you start if you don't finish. See, you could could be the fastest guy off the block. And that's the way Christians are, aren't we? Man, God motivates us and we get excited. And, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to serve here. I'm going to be a volunteer. I'm going to go and help other people. And I'm going to reach out. And I'm going to be in church. And I'm going to be in a Bible study. And we jump in with everything that we've got. We sprint out. And all of a sudden we start slowing down. And we stop. We drop out of this and we drop out of that and we drop that commitment. We drop this commitment. See, what the writer here is saying is it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. And the only way that you'll finish, and the word here for perseverance is a great word. It's used a lot of times uh, to talk about patience and to talk about endurance. It's the word hupomone, which, which means to patiently endure. And you don't normally think about patience when you're a runner, but the greatest runners are very patient. Because you see, it's real tempting to want to sprint. But they know they've got to pace themselves. 
Those of you that have run, you know what it's like. You, you come to that, that third mile or that fourth mile or that fifth mile, and you say, this is my chance. No, I've got to pace myself. I've got to be patient. You see what the, the writer here is saying is, is we've got to run with a determined spirit that, that we're just going to not give up. There is no give up. It's commitment. It's trusting. You see, there are going to be times, listen, in your life that you're going to get tired and you're going to grow weary. There are going to be times you're going to get frustrated, you'll be discouraged, you'll want to quit, you'll want to make excuses. All of those things that we do when we're competing, when we're running, I'm tired and I can't go on and I've gone farther than everybody else. I've done more than everybody. Sometimes you won't understand the way the racetrack's going to twist and turn. Sometimes you won't even like the condition of the race. This isn't fair. Why am I having to run in mud? You ever feel like that? Why am I having to, to slog through this mess? There are going to be times that you're going to want to call a timeout, times that you want to just give up. What he's telling us is you need to understand that lives may depend on your faithfulness. Someone may be just around the corner waiting for you. People are depending on you. See, there's somebody in your life waiting for the baton. Somebody in your I, I said last week, you know, Christianity's never more than a generation from being extinct. All it takes is for this generation to say, I'm done. Tired of doing this. I've done my time. Time out. I quit. See, we're supposed to run because somewhere in our lives we're going to hand off a baton here and hand off a baton here. And it may be a student, it may be a co-worker, it may be a family member. Maybe your own children and you're going to hand off that baton and say, listen, run. But you can't do that when you're back here quitting. You can't do that when you make excuses. You can't do that when you've given up. So he says, run with perseverance. And the second thing jumps out of me, and I always missed it when I first started reading this. He says, run the race marked out for you. See, it's real tempting to want to run somebody else's race. But God has a, a race for you. He's called you for a purpose. He's put you in that place for a purpose. It's real easy to want to look over at somebody else's race and go, man, I... I got, I'd like that race. You know, I, I think it's funny. You know, I, I told you when we talked about before the, the Facebook mentality of uh, people looking at Facebook and, you know, thinking that everyone around, all of your friends on your Facebook list have, have better lives than you uh, because all you ever see is the good things, right? You know, this is, we're out to eat or we're at the beach or we're at Disney World and here we are with my family and everybody's smiling and, because nobody puts what's really in their life on Facebook. Right? We don't put, you know, uh, overdrawn. The ATM card said, you know, take a picture. Uh, no funds available. Hey, this is happening to me today. Right? And so in the Christian life, we look around and we say, man, they got it made. God, why can't I run that race? God, why? And God says, because this is the one before you were born. I laid out for you because I knew you could do it. And it's bigger and it's better than anything you can imagine. Stop looking around. Run your race. You see, it's easy for us as parents to say, I'm going to run my kid's race. Or as grandparents, I'm going to run my kid's race. I'm, you know, they, they, they're not good enough. They're not, you know, I'm going to try to help them here. Listen, you can train them and you can build them up and you can encourage them, but they've got to run their race just like you've got to run yours. 
He says, run the race laid out before you. See, the reason it's important is because Jesus tells us the shepherd is always going to lead his sheep. You'll recognize his voice. And if you're not running your race, you're not going to hear him. Because he's expecting you to be right here. And as he tells you to come, you go. You take that step of faith. See, some of you are saying, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know where he wants me to go. It's because you're not running your race. Just run the race set out before you. And then the last thing here, probably the most important thing, probably the central focus of the passage. Probably the thing that that keeps all the others tied together, that keeps everything else there. He says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He says, you want to know how you can find yourself faithful at the finish line? You want to know how you can end up? He says, focus. The Greek word there means concentrate your gaze. See, the reason we lose our faithfulness is because we spend a lot of time gazing elsewhere instead of gazing at Jesus. Why gaze at Jesus? Because He's the author and perfecter of our faith. That means He wrote the book. He holds the map to your life. He's got all the secrets figured out. He's the perfecter. Focus on Him. Look to Him. It's like, a, it's like tunnel vision for a boxer. It's like a child that hears his parent's voice in a crowded place and focuses on that parent and nothing else can distract him. It's like a runner going to the finish line. Nothing is going to distract him. He said, listen, some of you, the reason you're having trouble is because you're not focusing. You're, you're focusing on yourself. You're focusing on over here or on the, what the world's trying to tell you. Or, he says, listen, it's about focus because you see the most important thing about being faithful is where our focus is. Where your eyes are, it's where your heart is. And as you focus on Jesus, you begin to trust Him. I'm reminded of a story. Church one Sunday, a teenage boy was sitting with several other youth, and uh, he wasn't paying attention really to what was going on in church. I know it's hard to believe, but he was kind of distracted. There was a cute girl, new girl, that was sitting at the end of the pew, and uh, he couldn't take his eyes off her. He was kind of mesmerized by her. She had cute brown hair, blue eyes, and he was watching her and looking at her, and uh, finally he decided he was going to be cute, and he picked up the hymnal, and he started going through the hymnal, and uh, you know, while the preacher's preaching, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's going through the hymnal, and uh, he finds a hymn, and he uh, passes it over to the little girl. She gets the hymnal and she looks at him and he points down at the page and the words to the hymnal, the, the page were on there and it said, I need thee every hour. He kind of smiled, winked at her. <laughs> Little girl got the hymnal. She started looking, looking around. She found a page she wanted. She passed it back to him. Little boy looked down, looked over at the girl because the page she had passed him said, I'd rather have Jesus. See, focus on Jesus keeps us from being distracted. But it also encourages us. It also motivates us. It keeps us going when we want to give up. Keeps our mind at the finish line. You know, nobody is a better example of what it means to focus than Peter. I mean, Peter is a walking testimony to losing your focus. Think about it, Matthew 16, Jesus is gathered around with the disciples. He, he's talking to them, who do people say that I am? And they, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a king. Looks at Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with something that came not from himself but from God because he was focused on Jesus, said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. 
Jesus said, that's exactly right. I'm going to call you Peter from now on. I'm not going to make fun of you by calling you Simon Peter. You're Peter. You're the rock. And I'm going to build my church on that statement. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Go, Peter. Four verses later. I mean, it's not even the next day. Four verses later, Jesus is saying, and for that to happen, I'm going to have to be persecuted and I'm going to be killed. And Peter jumps up and says, I'm not going to let that happen. See, Peter wasn't listening. Peter was thinking, it's about me. He jumps up, I'm not going to let that happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, here he is over here. He, he's Peter, the church, the rock. Get behind me, Satan. What was the difference? He lost his focus. He wasn't looking at Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God anymore. He was thinking, I I'm, I'm, I'm can step up and help. Wasn't listening. They're on the, the Sea of Galilee. Disciples are asleep. Start waking up and they hear a ruckus. Look out on the water. Jesus is out there for a stroll on the water. They're amazed. They're watching him. Peter looks out. He can't believe Jesus is walking on water. Jesus says, Peter, come on. Peter staring at his Savior. Talk about a step of faith. He got out. Starts walking on water. Focus. All of a sudden he looks down. Says, people can't walk on water. Sunk. See, it's a matter of focus. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is getting ready to be arrested. They've been praying, and the soldiers come and surround him. What does Peter do? Reaches in, gets a sword, comes out. I'm ready to take on the whole army. He goes out and cuts off a soldier's ear. Right? Peter is focused. He's ready to go. And then all of a sudden, three hours later, Someone he doesn't even know comes and says, aren't you one of those followers? Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. You see, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, listen, when you're getting tired, when you're getting weary, when you don't know what to do, focus on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. The light of His glory and grace. You see, He wants us to run. He wants us to be faithful. See, those that are faithful have tunnel vision, no distractions, no sidetracks, no entanglements, no hindrances, no giving up, no quitting. See, what Newt Rockney was telling his team in that famous scene, that when you get tired, when you can't go on, when you don't know what else to do, reach deep down inside of yourself. And he said, win one for the Gipper. And so what he's doing is as those players are playing past the emotion, they think, I've got to do this for him. That's the same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying. There in verse 3, he says, consider. You know what consider means? It means look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. Focus on Jesus. See what he was saying in essence here for you and I is sometimes we're going to be against it. Sometimes we're going to be down. Sometimes we're going to be losing and the brakes are going to be against the boys. We're, we're going to have everything going against us. But it's at that time that we need to go out. Give it everything that we've got and be found faithful. The question for you and I, what are we waiting for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
laying out a race that we are able to run. Father, forgive us when we get distracted. Forgive us when we quit. Forgive us when we get sidetracked. Forgive us when we allow other things to steal our joy, other things to steal our gaze, other things to to keep us from being who you've called us to be. God, I pray this morning that each of us in this room would recommit ourselves to getting in the race. There's a cloud of witnesses a great group of people that went before us that sacrificed, some that died, some that gave everything they had so that they could hand the baton off to us, not so we could sit in our comfort and peace, not so that we could live our own lives, but so that we could be faithful. God, let us live up to that calling. Let us live up to that that challenge. Let us be motivated and encouraged. Yes, it's tough. Yes, it's difficult. There's no promises that it's not going to be. But you tell us that if we trust you, We'll make it. We trust you. We'll persevere. And God, everything that you've given us, everything that you've promised us, is well worth the perseverance. God, let us get back in the race. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?